On April 17, 1521, an event took place that changed the course of Western civilization and the world. A lone monk stood before an imperial assembly convened by Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. In front of the court, he walked in to discover a table filled with books that he had written. And he was asked two questions. Are these your books? To which he answered, yes. The next question, will you recant? Take back what you wrote here. And he didn't know what to say. He discovered the truth of the gospel. That was what was in these books. How could he take it back? Yet if he didn't recant, he faced condemnation, likely death. So he asked for 24 hours to think about it. So at 4 p.m. the very next day, on April 18, 1521, he stood before that same assembly again. No debate. They asked him two questions, the same two. Are these your books? Yes. Will you recant? He answered, My conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. The man's name? Martin Luther. And God did help him actually after he was condemned. Luther was actually kidnapped by friendly soldiers and hidden in Wartburg Castle for over a year where he remained in hiding. And you know what he did? He translated the New Testament in the common tongue for other people to be able, common people to be able to read. Luther's stand was the spark which began the Reformation. The reason we have Bibles and churches with faithful confessions is because of Luther and many who followed him, who decided they must take a stand upon the truth of the gospel. So friends, here you are. You're seated here right now. And the same question from 500 years ago now comes to you. Will you take a stand on truth and suffer loss in this world? Welcome to 1 John chapter 2. I invite you to turn there right now. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 28. I'll remind you this letter began with a personal invitation to know Jesus and the Father. In chapter 2, then John gave us three tests so that we can assure ourselves that we actually know God and have eternal life. John says that we can actually know we know God through these diagnostics. Test one was our obedience. Knowing God is volitional. Do you trust and obey? Test number two. Knowing God is emotional, ethical. Do you love your fellow Christians? Today we come to test number three, our doctrine. Knowing God is informational, we could even say intellectual. Do you stand firm on the truth of Christ's coming and what he has done to save us? This is how you and I can have assurance of eternal life. But before we look at the, come to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word in prayer. Eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Give us your Holy Spirit who writes the preached word into our hearts. May we receive it and believe it 
and be cheered and comforted by it in eternity. Glorify your word in our hearts and make it so bright and warm that we may find pleasure in it through your Holy Spirit. And through that same Spirit, think what is right and by your power fulfill the word. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Now hear the word of our God. Children, it is the last hour. And as many of you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, that's Jesus, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Jesse has been reading a lot on Martin Luther lately. Martin Luther wrote of his incredible conversion when he experienced actually being born again. He describes the gates of paradise being spread wide open to him. And he knew that he was accepted he was loved, and that he was in sweet fellowship with Father God and his son Jesus. Much like John describes in this letter here. You may remember John was like doing cartwheels when he started chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, we have touched, we have heard, we have seen. John says, I was one of the first to experience the Son of God come in our flesh. Eternal life had come earthside. And he says, you too can have personal relationship with Jesus Christ and with the Father. And I want you to take that in and accept it so that our joy can be complete. John is bursting with joy over this. Friends, John says that we can have intimate, personal, real relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father who sent him. The reason he writes this letter is so that we can have assurance of eternal life in him. John, 1 John 5.13 And eternal life is knowing the Son and the Father who sent him. So here in chapter 2, he's saying, here's how you can know that you've come to know Jesus. And we've already gone through the first two tests. Our trust in God and our love then for each other. Two tests that actually are much more heartfelt, much more experiential. Now John moves to the third test, the test of our doctrine. What do you believe? You see, knowing God is both experiential and informational. You could say intellectual. 
You see, relationship with God requires both your heart and your head. I know many lists like doctrine. Doctrine divides. But knowing truths is actually crucial to any relationship. Think about it. You see, the intellect actually sets the plate for relationship. 20 years ago, I needed a lot of facts about Jamie. So I asked around. I asked Rich. I asked Mark to find out information about who she was, what she was like. I needed information about her life before the encounter of the drama could begin. Likewise, there are truths about God, about who he is and what he has done so that we can actually know him. It was actually the intellectual, the ascent to the truths of who God was that set the plate for Luther's conversion to Christ. You see, Luther, he was this monk, and he sought to live a really holy life. And when he wasn't doing good deeds, he was reading and meditating on his Bible. And do you know what happened? Made him furious, furious at God. Here's what he wrote. Luther said, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. The more he read this, the more he saw the best holy deeds he'd done were tainted with sin. So let me ask you, when you look in the mirror, when you look at yourself, when you look at your life, do you ever wonder how God could accept you? Maybe you get Luther. <laughs> Maybe you're not yet Christian. And you can't stand God's impossible standards that you read here. Friend, I'm actually delighted that you're seeing your failings. Full and final failure opens the door to faith. Luther was meditating on the righteousness of God that comes by faith. Romans 1.17, this is the verse. And his eyes were suddenly opened to see the righteousness God required of us was provided in Jesus Christ. As a gift, we simply receive through faith. Friends, this is the central truth of the gospel. Luther discovered actually what John opened chapter 2 with. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. The gospel is God's son moving into our neighborhood. To live that righteous life you and I have failed at, to die then the death that we deserve on the cross, and then to be raised on that first Easter morning as the new creation. And now, guess what? Look up. Our advocate attorney, Jesus, is in heaven, and the case is closed. There's no double jeopardy up in God's court. So we don't perform for God's verdict. We perform from God's verdict. Already done. We're acquitted, we're accepted, we're adopted the instant we bow and befriend Jesus Christ. That's who you are. These are the truths of the gospel. Assurance of our relationship and forever fellowship with the Father. That's why Luther could stand firm in the face of losing absolutely everything in the face of that assembly. That's why we're going to sing at the end of this sermon, Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Because his kingdom is forever. Friends, God's truth should change the way you view the world. How we understand reality. Last week, John was saying that Christians cannot adopt the materialistic mindset of all of our neighbors out there. Some folks in his day rejected the supernatural. And they lived for earthly pleasures. 
So do many of our neighbors, right? They think that the world is all there is. They're saying, hey, just enjoy the journey. Get as much fun as you can while you're here. But Christians do not live for this world or its desires because as we heard last week, this world is passing away. Christ's coming means that R.E.M. was right when they sang the end of the world as we know it. I actually entitled this sermon The Final Countdown because you can tell I was immersed in 80s rock as a kid. But actually, John said it first. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. How do we take seriously that John was saying, it's the last hour when he wrote this 2,000 years ago? Because actually what Peter said earlier, Jacob read that. We need a God-sized perspective of time. A thousand years is like a day to God. And he is patient because he doesn't want any of you to perish, any of us or our neighbors. It is the last hour. There is only one more event on God's timetable. It's the final countdown, friends. Jesus will return to judge this wicked world. But... Our worldview is not simply to survive until Christ's second coming. Rather, we're to thrive because of Christ's first coming. E. Stanley Jones observed, this is of true of John's generation, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look at what the world has come to, but in delight, look at what has come into the world. Does that change how you're seeing things in the Middle East or in Ukraine or in our neighborhoods? Christmas. God's arrival, Jesus in the flesh on planet Earth, gives us a hope as big as our world. God's redemption is as big as God's creation. Cosmic redemption is the Christian's hope. The Bible begins with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1. How does it end? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and a voice from the throne saying, Behold, I am making all things new. Friends, that's our worldview. Because Jesus came, we have something to say, something to sing to our world that's subjected to futility. You hear what your neighbors are singing? Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts, broken bodies, broken bones. Broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath. Feel like you're choking? Everything is broken. Friends, we have a different song to sing. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Eternal life has come earthside in Jesus Christ. Cosmic reconstruction has started. And where does it start? With the church. God's new creation. And we're called to make heaven real to our neighbors, to show them glimpses of true human beauty. We have been supernaturalized by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you realize we're the most powerful people on the planet. We have God Almighty dwelling in us. And we're to help others discover the truth, the truth of the real reality, even if it's not popular, even in John's day. John says, Antichrist is coming. And now many antichrists have come. I need to pause there because I know some of your minds just went to some places, right? 
I remember prophecy conferences where a man up in front would hold a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And he would really freak me out. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. Only John uses the term Antichrist and quite infrequently. The Antichrist simply is the one who denies Jesus is the Christ, who denies God came in the flesh. John is addressing false teachers called the Gnostics. We could call them spiritualists. Spiritualists had a negative view of this world. They rejected the incarnation. God would never become flesh because physical matter is bad. God, holy God, would never stoop to join himself to us crude creatures. And friends, this belief, this way of thinking is widespread today. And we need to learn how to recognize it. It was actually the New Age beliefs of the 60s, Age of Aquarius, right? Oh, but I actually remember Star Wars in the 80s. Remember Yoda? That little green Jedi who was, you know, training Luke Skywalker. He had this special knowledge, right? This gnosis about the Force. And Yoda tells Luke, you must feel the force around you. Luminous creatures we are. Not this crude matter. And he pokes Luke's body like he's just a meat patty. Right? See what he's saying? Actually, this same sort of spiritual thinking is even more prevalent today. Aren't our kids told in schools to search within to find their true identity? This crude body, change it. It's just the container meant to mold to fit to your true self. Like John's day, there is spiritualism that belittles the material world. See the errors from last week and this week? It's all spiritual, matter is bad. Or matter is the only thing that's real to think of the spiritual as primitive. But the Son of God, who is spirit, became matter, flesh, to start a new creation with both. With both. Christianity teaches that both are good, and both are being redeemed in Jesus Christ. And we have to hold fast to this truth. Jesus is one person with two natures, spirit and flesh. If we don't hold to this, we do not know God. We're actually then creating a false God of our own minds. Which is why some will reject the truth. They will not hold to this. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. John remembers there were some members of the church, folks they knew well, sat with at the potlucks. They were baptized. And now there's empty chairs where they once sat. I appreciate how John Stott says, John gives us two crucial doctrines in one verse. We first learn about the nature of the church. The difference between what we've been talking about in Sunday school, the visible church and the invisible, those who truly belong. Many appear to be Christians. They talk like Christians. You've met them, right? But then they depart. It even happened with the very first group Jesus ever gathered. John was a soil who received Jesus' truth. But Judas never embraced Jesus' person, and he departed. Friends, truth denial is always followed by total departure. Truth denial is always followed by total departure. That's the path. And some folks are always looking for something new, right? They come, and then after a time they leave. Because Pastor Joel, he doesn't have a new message. It's just the same thing every single week, isn't it? So we learn from those who leave. But we also learn about those who stay. John Stott's second point. 
He says we learn about the perseverance of the saints. I've met souls, dear souls, who've met with the tragic, the grievous. Their frames have been rocked by hardship. But they return week after week after week because they need the old, old story of Jesus Christ and his love. I may be giving your testimony right now. Being a Jesus disciple is the hardest thing in the world except for the alternative. And you've had moments where you felt that you're losing your grip, but then you came to realize it is not your grip on Jesus. It is Jesus' grip on you. It is God's solid grip on you. Look up John 10, 28, and 29. And there's more. John adds, you also have a helper. Verse 20. But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. John wants you to know that if you belong to Jesus, you have the anointing, the Holy Spirit, who gives us knowledge of God and of ourselves. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. Every Sunday, there's this great 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, and he would climb these spiral stairs to this raised pulpit to preach to 6,500 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And at each one of the 15 steps, he would say the same thing. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. 15 times. That's actually a line in our confession he's reciting. A truth we hold on to. Because Spurgeon and every preacher's only hope that his word will impart anything to human hearts is the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a truth we must confess. And John moves into more truths we must confess. Verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. We confess the Holy Spirit, but we also confess the Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. By the way, John is saying right now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's not his last name. Joel, what does it mean that Jesus is called the Christ? I'm glad you asked. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 31, asks, Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance, our only high priest who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, who guards us and keeps us in the freedom that he has won for us. Jesus was ordained by God the Father to be our prophet, our priest, and our King. He is the only way to God. Now actually, John has just made a whole lot of folks angry, not just in his day, but in our day. Our culture is all about inclusivity. He's actually contrasting those who have the truth of Christ and those who don't, who are liar, liar, pants on fire. They reject Jesus as the Christ. And he even adds, oh, and that means you're the Antichrist. John is saying there's absolute truth that can only be given by the Spirit of God. John is exclusive. 
He says, every other teaching out there, every other religion is a lie. Which is a further rub, because in our day, truth is relative, right? Live your own truth. Everyone can have their own opinions on spiritual things, so long as they're very, very sincere in those beliefs. You ever run into this? I have. A lot. We come up to somebody, you have your belief and I have mine, we must affirm each other because all ways are seen as equal. But John says the Christian only has exclusive truth. They have the only way to eternal life. And we confess the only way to God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And there are folks who would say to me, Joel, how dare you? I'm a good person. How dare you say I can't get to heaven? You see, they believe, if anybody believes in heaven or afterlife, what they're ultimately saying is, if I'm good enough, if they're good enough, if people are good enough, they can get in. Of course, yeah, Joel, Hitler and Bin Laden, they're, they're out. But most of us are pretty good. How dare you, Joel, say that good people can't go to heaven? That was actually the essence of the imperial assembly that Luther stood before, that they accused him of. The Roman Catholic Church taught that salvation was largely based upon our own merits, our own good works. You do good, you get to heaven. To which Luther said, and often in not very nice ways, a pox on your house, or he call them stupid. Now, we shouldn't call people today stupid. I'm not, I'm not encouraging that. But we neither should we let them make us out as exclusive. Because they're in fact doing the very same thing. I want you to think about it. If you see like Luther that you are a sinner, you can point out very kindly that they are the ones being exclusive to you. What do you mean, Joel? Well, they are excluding bad people. If I have to be good enough to go to heaven, I'm in trouble because I don't believe I'm a good person. I'm with Luther. I take an honest look at me in the mirror and I'm no good. I'm telling my neighbor, my only hope is that someone else can give me the goodness I need so I can get to heaven. I'm saying, I'm so thankful for Jesus, who is not only my God, but he's also my goodness. Jesus is my goodness. Anybody here thankful for the goodness of Jesus this morning? Amen. Amen. Jesus plus nothing else equals eternal life, which is what we read next. John says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. John ends this passage where he provides two ways for us to abide in Christ. First, we hold fast to the message that we have heard. We hear the same gospel from the same Bible every single week. We recite the same creed. Friends, you have been given objective truth. Second, if you're a believer, the anointing that you have received. The Heidelberg Catechism actually follows up the question about Christ the anointed with this one. But why are you called a Christian? Answer, because by faith I am a member of Christ and so I share in his anointing. You share 
in the same anointing Jesus had when he was walking planet Earth. Do you realize that? You have the same Holy Spirit. We have a heavenly teacher, which is why you don't have anyone, you don't have any need for anyone to teach you. Now, don't kick me out of the pulpit right now. All right? Thankfully, John is not saying we don't need Pastor Joel and other teachers. John's not saying you don't need instructors, because after all, he is instructing you here, right? He's saying that you have all you need to abide. You have all you need to have assurance of eternal life. You can be confident, little children, that you will not shrink in shame. You will be confident when you see Jesus Christ returning. Do you want that when Jesus Christ returns? To not be shrinking in shame, but to have confidence. Come on, Jesus, Maranatha. You see, you have the teaching and you have the teacher. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is, yes, much better than Pastor Joel. So the question as you leave here, are you taking hold of the incredible blessing that you've been given? Have you been taking in the truth of our verse of the month? Let's recite it together. It's found at the bottom of your bulletin here, underneath the sermon text. Let's recite October verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Why does this small teacher encourage you to memorize and meditate on a verse each and every month? Friends, because there is a knowing that goes beyond knowing. That is the reason for 1 John. A knowing that results in the transformation by God's word as being said here in Romans 12.2. Let me ask you, how could John could continue to minister? He's writing this letter after he's watched all the other apostles. They've been martyred, killed in horrible ways. How can he still continue to minister? How could Elijah stand firm on the truth when he's watched all the other prophets get slaughtered? How could Luther face a council when the last guy who did this got burned at the stake? Luther said, If even the emperor calls me to Worms in order to kill me, that was the council, or to declare me an enemy of the empire, I shall offer to come. With Christ helping me, I shall not run away, nor shall I abandon God's word in this struggle. The reason he could do it was because Jesus, Luther knew that Jesus was with him. He knew his presence. Luther had come to know the pure and present presence of Jesus Christ with him. Do you know that God is with you and for you and in you? Do you want to know God's presence? Do you want to know that? Friend, there is a knowledge that God has for you and for you alone. And that only comes down by sitting down with the teaching and the teacher. Inviting the teacher to help you with the teaching. The journey will actually begin like Luther's with self-knowing. The light will begin to shine into the darkness. And you'll start discovering things about yourself that are worse than you imagined. The realization that, yes, you've been traumatized by evil outside you, but that there's also within you a false self that's equally horrifying. And at that point, you will want to turn back. But the teacher will show you that you cannot turn back because there's nowhere to go back to. 
Yes, your old wounded sinful self will frantically try to regain control and you know what I'm talking about. But as you learn to sit in that tension with the teacher and the teaching, you will begin to experience the pure presence of God if you're willing to sit in that tension and seek it. You will find the gift of love, of compassion, of acceptance. Because after self-knowing comes God-knowing, God-knowing. You know the original words found in the Bible for knowing, they're just so full and rich. They're about union. They're about communion. They're about participation. There is knowing of God that goes beyond the facts of knowing about him. There's a knowing of God that also goes beyond the feelings. A lot of people come to church for a great experience in their feelings or they go to learn something new and that's great and fine. I hope you get that. But what I want more than anything is for you to come here and to meet with God, to know his person. There's an experience of his pure presence, the fellowship that John is inviting us to know that our joy might be complete. We have an invitation, friends, each of us as we leave here. You have an invitation in your hand to give yourself over to the one who loves you just as you are, but loves you so much that he'll never let you stay who you are because he makes all things new. Jesus will strip away the old self, those illusions that we have identified with for so long, and he'll bring into reality the true self that God created good so that you might glorify him and enjoy him forever. I close with saying, friends, you are fearfully and wonderfully made with a unique calling that only you can do, and God will reveal that to you because God is for you, God will be with you, and he wants to do mattering things through you for this short little moment that we have here on earth. Let's pray that we come to know and to be known. Heavenly Father, what manner of love is this that we should be called your children? And such we are. And we thank you for the truths of the gospel. And we confess to you that too often we have held to them lightly. I ask and pray that each of us will walk out of here holding fast to the truth and desiring to know more of the truth. And we pray that you'll give us not only the teaching to hold on to, but the teacher in greater measure, your Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit of Christ to help us to walk out into our world and to begin to become smaller as the old self is stripped away. But as we're smaller, to know that in that humility we are greatly loved. So I pray that you will strengthen each and every soul here by the power of your Spirit. May you, the God of hope, fill us with all joy and all peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.